So go ahead and take your Bibles, open up with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. I was reminded as we were singing just then that um, we're thankful for uh, the gift of sound equipment and, and hopefully all this will allow um, Justin and Stephen and the, the folks in our sound or our, our music ministry to serve you better. But the most important instrument in our song service is nothing that goes on on the stage. The most important instrument in our song service is the voice of the congregation. Um, and I was reminded of that as we sang, that there's nothing that's a, a bigger blessing to me sitting down front than hearing your voices sing. So as much as we're thankful for all that, it's just a tool to serve you better. But it's God's people singing together. That's what the music portion of worship is about. It's not about uh, listening to what's happening on the stage. It's not about watching a performance. It's about being led and being served so that we as a church family can serve God better. And so... Uh, we're appreciative for them and the time they put into getting all this set up. But we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 together this morning. So you can go and start turning there in your Bible if you would. We've been studying through Ecclesiastes for several months now and are quickly coming toward the end of it. Somewhere in the next month or so, we're going to finish up with this study. And uh, before we dive into this, will you bow with me for a word of prayer and let's just ask for God's help in this. Father, we're thankful for this morning, and uh, Lord, we're thankful for what we just sang about. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would be our wisdom and that you would be our true word. Uh, we believe, Father, that all of your wisdom is summed up for us in Christ, that he is the high point of true wisdom, that we know you, we know life, we know eternity, we know salvation, we know how to live only through the person and work of Jesus. And so, Father, as we think through wisdom as Solomon lays it out here, we, we pray that we would see through all of this a, a picture of who Jesus is and that we would trust him and turn to him and follow him. And uh, we pray for insight, Lord, as we turn our attention to Scripture now. We ask that you would speak to us, that we would do the hard work of not just listening to your word, but we would do the hard work of where needed repenting and obeying and uh, believing. And so, uh, Father, help us with that this morning. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, again, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 together. And you know by now that Ecclesiastes is a book that was written by King Solomon. But of course, it's not the only writing we have in our Old Testaments from Solomon. Uh, Solomon wrote at least one of the Psalms. Solomon wrote almost all of the book of Proverbs. And he also wrote the book that bears his name. He wrote the Song of Solomon. But as we've seen before, Ecclesiastes is different from all the other books that Solomon wrote. So whereas Song of Solomon is wisdom for marriage, and Proverbs is mainly practical wisdom for daily life, Ecclesiastes, the point of this book, isn't really to show us how to live as much as it's making us think about the purpose of life. So Ecclesiastes isn't mostly Solomon in the weeds talking about the issues of life as much as is Solomon taking us up to 30,000 feet and looking down on life, and Solomon is trying to help us see what it is that makes life worth living. That's what this book is about. And so Solomon probably wrote this later in his life, and so think of Solomon as a senior adult, and he's looking in the rearview mirror, looking back on the life that he's lived. And from the vantage point that he has, he can look back, and he can see all the different paths he went down in his life, many of which did not matter at all. So from later in his life, he is able to look back and Solomon is able to see what it is that matters in life 
and what it is in life that doesn't matter at all. And Solomon's conclusion is that disconnected from God, listen, disconnected from God, nothing in life really matters. So if you try to go through life disconnected from the God who made you, you will not live a life that has any lasting purpose or any lasting joy. That's sort of the overarching picture of this book. The way I've described it before, and, and I just use this description because it helps me think about it, is think of the way that our solar system works. There are all sorts of different size objects in our solar system. There are huge planets, and there are moons, and there are comets, and there are asteroids. But all of these different sized objects are held in place by our sun. It's, it's the gravitational pull of the sun at the middle of all of this that holds everything else in its proper place. But if you took the sun out of the way tomorrow, nothing would stay in its proper orbit. I instantly, everything would fly into chaos. Well, that's a good way to think about life. There, there are in our lives some very big things, like marriage and family and ministry and friendship. And there are also in our lives small things, hobbies and entertainment. But what Solomon wants us to see is the only way all of those different things are held in their proper place is for God to be at the center. I have to live my life under the fear of God. I've got to see God for who He is, relate to God according to His revelation. When that's there, everything else in my life finds its proper place. But when God isn't given His proper place in my life, nothing else lines up where it's supposed to line up. Okay, that's a big way to think about this book. Solomon wants to remind you, you were made by God and you were made for God. You were not made primarily for a job. You were not made primarily for a relationship. You were not made primarily for a hobby. You were made for God. And because of that, your life will only make sense in relationship to God. So God has to be in His right place for everything else in life to line up. That's the big picture of this book. But there are times in Ecclesiastes where Solomon comes down from 30,000 feet. And there are times where he wants to tell us that now that God is in His right place in our life, there's a way that we're called to live as God's people. And the last half of chapter 9 and going into chapter 10 is one of those sections. And so this is going to be a section that has much the same feel as the book of Proverbs, where Solomon is going to give us practical wisdom for living. And we've talked about wisdom before. Wisdom is knowing how to live God's way in God's world. Wisdom is knowing how to live life in the light of God's revelation. So I see how to live according to what God has told me. I mean, think about it. If this universe belongs to God, then the only way I can know how to live in it is with God's help. And here's what adds to that. Not only is this God's universe, it's also a universe that's under the curse of sin, which means life is hard and life is confusing. So if I'm going to figure out how to go through this life in a way that pleases God, I need God's help to do that. And that's what wisdom is about. And so what Solomon's going to do today is he is going to say that for every single one of us, there are two pathways in front of us. 
for every single one of us, we will either walk the pathway of wisdom or we will live our lives like fools. Okay? Only two options. You will either live the life of godly wisdom or you will live the life of a fool. So let's just read the passage together. If your Bible's open to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 13 and we're going to read all the way down through the 11th verse of chapter 10. So Ecclesiastes 9, beginning in verse 13, Solomon, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, wrote, This wisdom I've also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that same poor man. And then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard, rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom, and he shows everyone that he is a fool. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post, for conciliation pacifies great offenses. There's an evil I've seen under the sun as an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity, while the rich sit in a lowly place. I've seen servants on horses, while princes walk on the ground like servants. He who digs a pit will fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. And he who splits wood may be endangered by it. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength, but wisdom brings success. A serpent may bite when it's not charmed. The babbler is no different. So Solomon's making lots of points here about the value of wisdom. And I want to sum it all up under five main headings, five key points. Here's the first one. Number one, wisdom is precious but it's rarely prized. Wisdom is precious. Notice how he starts the section. Verse 13, Solomon says, this wisdom I've also seen under the sun. Now notice, Solomon's describing something here that he had seen. So this isn't a hypothetical, this isn't something he had heard about. This is something Solomon, as the king of Israel, had witnessed. So what had he witnessed? Here's the story. Verse 14. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that same poor man. Do you see what Solomon's saying? It's a pretty straightforward story. So imagine a city, a very small walled city in the ancient world. 
There, there are not a whole lot of military-aged men in the city, which means there aren't a whole lot of warriors to defend the city if it comes under attack. And there's this neighboring king who decides he wants their territory for himself. And so he takes his army and he invades the city. So everybody runs inside the walls and locks the gates. But now what? Well, the easiest thing to do if you are an invading empire, rather than risk all the casualties of trying to take down the wall or scale the wall, is you would just surround the walled city and wait them out. Not allow any supplies to get in, not allow any of the wounded to get out. And so eventually they'd run out of food in the city. And so you would wait for them to get so hungry that they surrendered or wait for them to get so hungry that maybe they eventually starved to death and then you could easily take control. So that's the picture. You have this walled city that's surrounded by this big army. They're trapped. They're outnumbered. There's no way out. But, Solomon says, in this city, there's a poor, wise man. Now, we can spend just a second on that because this corrects the idea. So, sometimes there's the view that all rich people must be wise and all poor people must be foolish, but Solomon says here is a poor, wise man. So this is a man who doesn't have much money, he doesn't have titles, he doesn't have degrees, he's not a politician, but he has wisdom. And in his wisdom, he figures out a solution to the problem. We're not told what it is, but he figures out a way to either outmaneuver the other king or to appease the other king. And by his wisdom, he saves the whole city. So here's the first point. So do you see how the first point here is? Solomon wants us to see the value of true wisdom. Wisdom can overcome obstacles. Wisdom can overcome huge odds. So wisdom is precious, but that's not the only point Solomon makes, is it? Because what happens to this poor wise man after he saves the city? What would you expect to happen? This guy just saved the city. How would you think the city would treat him now? You would think they would maybe have a parade in his honor. Have one of those ceremonies where they give him the key to the city. Maybe, maybe have a vote and make him their new city leader. I mean, he just saved the whole city when no one else could figure it out. But is that what happens? No, instead, this poor wise man is quickly forgotten. No reward, no honor. Because he doesn't have any titles, because he doesn't have any position, he is mostly ignored. Okay, look down at Solomon's application, verse 16. Solomon says, Then I said, Wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not Heard. Now get how valuable Solomon is saying wisdom is. Wisdom, he says, is better than strength. Have you ever heard little kids having a conversation about superheroes? And sometimes the conversation will turn into, what is the best superpower? Is it to be able to fly or super speed? Well, one of the superpowers that's often put at the top of the list is super strength. But Solomon is saying here that wisdom is better than strength. So he's emphasizing in all of your getting, make sure you get wisdom. Okay, so here's a wise man, a poor man who has wisdom though. So why is this poor man 
ignored. Well, he's ignored because he doesn't have money. He's ignored because he doesn't have position. So let me, let me make two quick points on this first picture that Solomon's painting. Okay, the first point is make sure in your personal life you value and pursue wisdom. Again, wisdom is living God's way in God's world. It is governing and leading my life based on the light of God's revelation. And the only way we have wisdom is what? We've talked about it several times in this study because it's said several times in the Old Testament. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the only way you and I will ever have true wisdom is if we have a proper fear of God. That means I have to see God for who He is. I have to live my life under the sway of God's authority. I have to bend my life to the authority of God's Word. That's the only way. So true wisdom starts with a right view of who God is. It's why A.W. Tozer said that uh, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a great quote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. My view of God will determine everything else in my life. If I have a view of God that is high and lofty and glorious and exalted and I see myself in relation to this grand glorious God, that sets me on the path of wisdom. But if I live my life kicking against God's authority, if I live my life determined I'm going to have my own way and do my own thing, I have shut the door to the path of wisdom. So Solomon is saying, pursue wisdom. Wisdom is valuable. But you see how the other side is also true. While wisdom is valuable, Solomon also wants us to see that wisdom is rarely valued. He says that wisdom is often unheard. In fact, there are lots of times when wisdom will actually be despised. I mean, think about it in our own culture. Are we a culture that values wisdom? What would you say our culture values? I would say that above everything else, our culture values fame. Our culture values prestige. I mean, it used to be in our world that to get attention and fame, you had to accomplish something. You had to at least be a great athlete or a great singer. Now you can have fame just for fame's sake. You can have a million Facebook followers just because you somehow gained the public Spotlight. We're not a world that values wisdom. We're a world that values fame, that values position. Don't, don't you see this all the time in our culture? I mean, why in the world would people care what some movie star thinks about a political issue? Why would anybody care what Taylor Swift thinks about same-sex marriage? Why would anybody care what LeBron James thinks about politics? Why would anybody care what teenage Greta Thunberg thinks about energy policy? But there are millions of people who do. Because we're not a culture that values wisdom. We're a culture that values fame and position. But what Solomon is hitting at here is, as Christians, we're people who see life differently. We have a different value system. We see through, I hope, you see through the emptiness of fame. And you see through the emptiness of money and you see through the emptiness of popularity none of that stuff really matters in eternity and the other side of that is if you live your life with any of those things being your main goal 
If you live your life with your main goal being popularity or status or attention, you will not walk the path of wisdom. Because there will be lots of times in your life, I'll even say it this way, most of the time in your life, living the life of biblical wisdom is not going to get you a lot of pats on the back. Living the life of biblical wisdom is not going to make you the bell of the ball. Living the life of biblical wisdom is not going to get you a lot of attaboys. So you've got to make the decision that you're going to live your life according to the light of God's Word, regardless of the consequences. So religion, excuse me, um, wisdom is precious but rarely prized. Here's the second thing. Wisdom is powerful but easily spoiled. Look at verse 17. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Now what does Solomon say should happen? Well, we should be on the lookout for wisdom no matter where it comes from. Regardless of a person's rank, if they're wise, they should have our attention. No matter how unassuming they might be, we should pay attention to wise voices. And on the other hand, if they're foolish, we shouldn't pay them any attention, no matter how loudly they may shout. But Solomon's saying that's not usually the way it goes. Not only is our fallen world more interested in fame and position, our fallen world is also more interested in bluster and bravado. It's usually the, uh, the loudest voice, not the wisest voice, that wins over the crowds. The calm teaching of a wise man is usually ignored in favor of the loud shouts of a fool. And here's a, here's a good rule of thumb to follow in life. In life, and I would say this is probably true in family, in business, in politics, the loudest voice is rarely the wisest voice. The person who just boisterously throws their weight around and rants and raves is rarely the voice of wisdom. So as a follower of Christ, have the wisdom to see through that. Have the wisdom to see through fame and position and have the wisdom to hear through the noise to find real wisdom. Verse 18, Solomon writes, Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Now that's another great thing about wisdom. Not only is wisdom precious, wisdom is greater than weaponry. You can have a wise general who is outnumbered and outmanned and he can win the battle because of his wisdom. So wisdom is fantastic, but, Solomon says, all it takes is one sinner. All it takes is one fool to undo everything built by wisdom. So just based on that, let me ask you a question. What is easier to do in life? Is it easier in life to build something or easier in life to tear something down? It takes a lot of wisdom to build something significant that matters and that lasts. But how much does it take to destroy something? Solomon says it takes one fool. So wisdom is great, but wisdom is fragile. Here's his illustration of that. Look at the first verse in chapter 10. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly 
to one respected for wisdom and honor. Do you see what Solomon's saying? He's given an illustration. Just like one fool can ruin everything, all it takes is just a few flies to ruin a whole bottle of perfume. We've talked about the value of perfume before in the ancient world. But you'll remember that these people did not have bathtubs and walk-in showers in their homes. So they're not taking a full body scrub every day. They can't go down to Walmart and get soap and shampoo and deodorant. And on top of that, are most of them working at desks in air-conditioned offices? No, most of them are working outside in the hot sun. They're working around livestock all day. So you don't have baths in your house. You don't have deodorant. You're working outside around livestock. And so you often don't smell the best. And so if you were going to a social gathering, what you would do is you would dab on some perfume. You would put some ointment on to try to make yourself smell a little better, to, to, to hide the scent. And so perfumes were precious and they were hard to make. You had to extract oil from plants and saps from trees and mix it together to make it. Well, you can imagine mixing all these different oils together, what's going to be drawn to it? Insects are going to be drawn in. And so if you're not careful, you're going to get insects in this ointment and if they get in there and they die, they ruin the whole ointment. So what was meant to smell sweet will instead turn rancid. So you get the point he's making here. Now think about it. Why would just a few insects matter? You have more perfume than you have insects. So as long as you have more perfume than insects, everything should be fine, right? Now Solomon's saying it just takes a little foolishness. Maybe to bring it into something we'd be more familiar with. Let's say that after the service today, you decide you're going to go grab some lunch. Let's say you go to uh, Olive Garden, and you order your favorite pasta dish, whatever that is at Olive Garden. They bring it out, and they set the bowl of pasta in front of you, and as you stick your fork in, there's a long hair that weaves its way through your pasta. So you don't want to cause a big stir, so you call the waiter over to point it out so you can get another dish. What if the waiter came over and said, there's only one hair? There's a lot more pasta in that bowl than there is hair. So I think it's okay. How would you respond to that? It only takes one hair to ruin the whole dish. Well, that's the sort of thing that Solomon's saying here. It just takes a little bit of foolishness. You, you can take that down to the personal level. You, you can live most of your life in light of God's revelation. You can live most of your life striving for biblical wisdom, yet you can choose to have one or two areas of your life that you just want to cordon off. Those two areas are off limits. I'm going to do what I want to do in these two areas. This will be my areas. What's the problem with that? Well, one problem is Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is Lord means He's Lord over everything. I don't get to cordon anything off. But the other problem with that is that sin, foolishness, won't stay cordoned off. Foolishness won't stay in the area where you want it to stay. It will seep into every area of your life and it will spoil the whole thing. A great example, think of the life of David, described as a man after God's own heart. David lived his life, so much of it, with wonderful wisdom, yet you and I can't even think of David without what coming to our minds. We can't even think of David without thinking of his affair with Bathsheba. So much good, so much wisdom was spoiled by one act of foolishness. You, you can take that not just to the personal level, 
those of you who are married, think of how this would apply to your marriage. There might be 90% of the areas in your marriage might be great. But there might be one area in your marriage where you and your spouse still behave foolishly. One of the areas that shows up most often in Christian marriages is in how we handle conflict. So maybe there's not a whole lot of biblical peacemaking in my home. Maybe there's lots of it that's great. But when we disagree, there's no distinctly Christian flair to how we disagree. It's an explosion just like it is for those who don't know Christ. It's the same way. Nobody's ever willing to say, I'm sorry. We never get down to the root of the problem. But it's just one area, right? You know the way Solomon says it in Song of Solomon? He says that it's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. And we all could give illustrations of this. Every person in here can think of areas where you and I did one foolish thing. We rebelled against God in one area and it caused massive damage. Maybe one time that I was a fool in how I handled a conflict, I said something foolish and I ruined that one act of foolishness. I ruined a relationship, maybe in your career. One act of foolishness and you blew a job opportunity. Just a little bit of foolishness is destructive. Okay, so what that means is, so where you see foolishness in your life, foolishness is any area of my life that is not being lived under the light of God's revelation. Where you see that in your life, you might have convinced yourself it's just one area. I assure you it's not just that area. It will seep out into every area of your life. Here's the third thing. Number three, wisdom and folly cannot be hidden. Look at verse 2 of chapter 10. Solomon says, A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. Now what does that mean? Well, in the Bible, the, the right hand and the left hand have uh, moral and spiritual significance. So the right hand is typically the hand of righteousness and blessing. And the left hand is the hand of wickedness and cursing. So a great example in Matthew 25 when Jesus is describing the day of judgment. Do you remember how he describes it? He says that he separates out his sheep. That's the people who belong to him. And which side does he put his sheep on? He puts his sheep on his right hand. They're marked off as righteous and they're blessed. And he takes the goats, that's those who don't belong to Christ, and he puts them on his left hand. It's the hand of evil and unrighteousness. So you have the right hand and the left hand. You have a wise heart and a foolish heart. And you remember in the Bible, your heart isn't just what you feel with. Your heart's the core of who you are. Your heart's what you feel with and think with and make decisions with. Your heart is your inner you. And so when Solomon says the wise heart is at the right hand and the foolish heart is at the left hand, what Solomon is saying is the heart that's filled with wisdom is going to tilt toward righteousness. And the heart that's filled with foolishness is going to tilt toward evil. Maybe a simple way to think of it. Think of it as a car that's out of alignment. What happens if, you have, if your car is out of alignment? It, it pulls. You don't have to do anything. It just naturally pulls in one direction. Well, Solomon is saying that a heart that is filled with foolishness 
will naturally pull toward evil. And a heart that's filled with wisdom, a heart that is genuinely under the fear of God and looking to God through faith in Jesus will naturally pull toward righteousness. So the point he's making is, you can tell whether someone's heart is filled with wisdom or folly by the direction that their life tends to pull. Make sense? So if your heart's filled with wisdom, it's going to show up in the direction that your life goes. So if you look at your life and you think, man, I'm constantly getting myself in a mess. Well, I need help in decision making. I always make bad decisions. No, no. The problem is not that you make bad decisions. It's a heart problem. You're, you're never going to get out of that routine by taking a class on decision making. Not that that would be unhelpful. But until your heart is recalibrated toward God, your life is not going to start tilting in the wrong direction. The heart of a fool tilts toward wickedness. Verse 3, he elaborates on this and says, Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom. And he shows everyone that he is a fool. Solomon's point is that um, a fool will eventually tell on himself. You can tell a fool by how he walks. And walk, your walk in the Bible is your manner of life. It's how you approach life and how you live life. And Solomon is saying that if you, if you watch a person long enough, if you listen to a person talk long enough, it will tell whether they're really wise or foolish, whether they're really living their life under the sway of God's authority or whether this is someone who has rejected God's authority. And while we're talking about foolishness, let's back up a little bit. Because there have already been several times in Ecclesiastes where Solomon has described what the walk of a fool looks like. Okay, he elaborates on it in Proverbs. But let me show you some of the things Solomon has told us about fools. Go back, if you would, to chapter 4 in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Let me show you a few places where Solomon tells us how a fool walks. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 5. Solomon says, The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. What does Solomon mean that a fool folds his hands? It means that a fool's not busy, meaning a fool tends to be lazy. Foolishness and laziness tend to go together. That's one mark. Look at chapter 5 verse 3. Solomon says, for a dream comes through, many, uh, through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. What's another thing that indicates a fool? Fools can't shut up. So it's like, it's like our mouths are the pressure valve of our hearts. And if my heart is filled with foolishness, it's going to come spouting out my mouth. So fools are not always, but often lazy. Fools are often loud mouths. Go forward to chapter 7. Here's another thing that marks the life or the walk of a fool. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. Solomon says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Now the point of this part of Ecclesiastes is that fools live shallow lives. 
Fools are always game for a party. They're great with jokes. They love to cackle. But they have no time for the weightier things of life. So, so maybe you can think of it this way. Think of a lady who is very quick and easy to talk about, I don't know, her, her favorite place to shop or quick to talk about whatever her hobbies are or quick to talk about what's going on in the lives of her children or think of a guy who, man, he can spend all day talking about his favorite hunting trip or spend all day talking about what his favorite sports car is but have no real time to talk about God or eternity have no real interest in talking about what a biblical marriage looks like or what it means to really disciple your kids. The point of chapter 7 is that's the mark of a foolish heart. Fools have no tolerance for the weighty things of life. I'll give you one more. Look at chapter 7, verse 9. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of of fools. So what's another way to tell a fool? Another way foolishness will show up in my life is in how I deal with anger. Fools can't control their temper. Fools are quick to fly off the handle. And, and maybe, maybe for you, you don't blow up in anger, but maybe like Solomon says here, maybe you just in your bosom hold on to anger. Maybe you don't explode when you get mad, but maybe you're the sort of person who you're going to spend the next two months stewing over it. And you're going to hold on to grudges for the next half of a year. Well, Solomon's saying that's the behavior of a fool. And so do you see how all this connected together is giving us the picture that foolishness shows up in how a person lives. So again, take this start. I guess two things here. One is I would want to be careful about who my closest friends are as a Christian. If what Solomon said earlier is true, if a whole life of wisdom can be undone by just a little bit of folly, then I want to be careful as a Christian about making sure the people I spend the most time with aren't people who are fools. I don't want to spend my, most of my time with people who don't live under the fear of God. That's one warning in this. And the other warning in this is, I, I, as a Christian should take a microscope to my life and be on the lookout for foolishness. Maybe I look at my life and maybe I'm not lazy, but maybe I, I just can't shut my mouth. Maybe I'm not lazy, but I'm the kind of person, anytime a spiritual conversation comes up, I move for the door as quick as... I haven't had a spiritual conversation with my wife or a child or a friend in 20 years. Or I'm the sort of person who cannot deal with anger. I'm great, but you get me mad and everybody within a six-block radius is going to know about it. And I, I hold grudges for years. I'm a master at burning bridges. Well, Solomon is saying that is the walk of a fool and that walk is there because folly is bound up in my heart. So if you see this in your life as you see this, I shouldn't say if, as, we all see this sort of thing in our lives from time to time. As you see this in your life, deal with it relentlessly. Don't be content. Well, that's just how God made me. I'm the kind of person who, and I got that Irish blood, I lose my temper. No, no. You've got sinner's blood. That's the blood you have. You need to repent of that. Get accountability. Ask for God's grace. You're a lazy person. Get accountability. Repent of your laziness and get your rear end to work. 
Right? So, so don't deal with kid gloves with folly in your life. Right? That's the warning from Solomon. Here's the fourth point. Number four. Wisdom is invaluable in leadership. So as we get into verse four, Solomon is going to talk about how we respond to foolish leaders and the consequences of foolish leaders. Look at verse four. Solomon says, If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post, for conciliation pacifies great offenses. So here's the question. What do you do when someone in authority over you acts foolishly? Well, what do you do when your boss at work loses his temper? Or what do you do when the police officer who pulls you over for some reason is in a bad mood and he Maybe he's being a jerk. How do you respond to that? Maybe I should ask this first. How do you want to respond to that? I'll tell you what I want to do. I, I want to give back in kind. So if you're going to be a smart aleck to me, I'll be a smart aleck to you. If the boss is going to lose his temper, man, it feels good just to storm out and say I quit. Somebody offends me at church, it feels great to put a little vague post on social media and say I'm never going back. It's easy to do all that stuff. But Solomon is saying that's not the mark of toughness, that's not the mark of wisdom, that is the mark of foolishness. The, the real power in a situation like that is the power of self-control. And that's a power that not very many people have. It's been well said that it is not wise to argue with a fool because most people watching won't be able to tell who's who. In other words, you, you respond to a fool in kind and you become a fool yourself and you make the situation worse. But Solomon is saying real wisdom shows up in self-control. And self-control has the ability to heal breaches. Self-control has the ability to fix problems. So pursue self-control. Here's the next part. Pick up in verse 6. Another I have seen passage. Solomon says, There's an evil I've seen under the sun as an error proceeding from the ruler. So here's something Solomon has seen. A problem that comes from foolish rulers. Folly is set in great dignity while the rich or the nobles sit in a lowly place. I've seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. So here's the basic idea. Solomon is saying one of the problems with having foolish leaders is foolish leaders turn everything upside down. So, so Solomon is saying well, what happens with foolish leaders is the nobles, meaning people who are really equipped to lead, they get pushed to the sideline and foolish leaders tend to promote other fools into positions of authority. Think of it in the life of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam becomes king when Solomon dies and is immediately confronted with a problem. The, the northern tribes ask for some relief from the burdens. And, so, and uh, Rehoboam has a choice to make. There are the old advisors who had served Solomon and who had their finger on the pulse of the empire. And what does Rehoboam do with those advisors? He kicks them to the curb. And meanwhile, he gets all of his buddies he grew up with, guys who knew nothing about ruling an empire. He brings them in and promotes them to positions of power. And what's the result? The result is the whole empire comes 
rabble. That's what Solomon is saying. So foolish leaders despise wisdom. And so because of that, they reject the wise and they promote other fools. That whole idea about princes on the ground leading the horses and servants on the horse's back. Normal people didn't have horses. Horses were used mainly in military pursuits, in battles. And it would be the leaders who would sit on the horses. But Solomon is saying, what you end up with when a fool is in charge is people who should only be servants end up getting put on the horses. They're promoted to positions of leadership and the ones who should be on the horses end up walking on the ground like regular foot soldiers. So experts are treated like fools and fools are treated like experts. So it's just emphasizing all the collateral damage that comes when you have a foolish leader. Foolish leaders promote other fools who promote other fools who promote other fools and everything in that church, in that family, in that culture gets turned on its head. Okay, we see this often firsthand. Here's the fifth one, number five. Wisdom sees beyond the moment. Wisdom sees beyond the moment. Pick up in verse 8 and we'll go down all the way through verse 11. He's going to give a, several illustrations. He who digs a pit will fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. He who splits wood may be endangered by it. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. A serpent may bite when it's not charmed. And then moving into the next section, the babbler is no different. So here's the common theme. He gives four situations that you could run into in daily life. And they're all situations where if you don't use a little foresight, you end up in trouble. So imagine a man who's taking down a rock wall outside and in his haste he reaches through the rock wall to pull out a stone and he never looks around to the other side and there's a snake on the other side of that wall and he reaches his hand through in haste and he gets bitten. Or imagine a man who is digging a pit to trap an animal and he covers it up and he gets distracted and forgets where the pit is and he falls into it himself. Or think of a man who's quarrying stone and he has his hammer and chisel and he is chiseling away to get a piece of granite and he's oblivious to the fact that a fissure has opened up over his head and as he chisels in a moment a whole slab of rock is going to collapse on his head. Or a snake charmer who's got his flute but before he starts playing he brings the serpent out and he gets distracted and this serpent before he begins to play strikes at him. Do you see what all of those scenarios have in common? The problem in each one is you have someone who doesn't think ahead. He gets, he gets so caught up in what needs to be done in the moment that he loses sight of the big picture. The best example is the one where he talks about the guy with the dull axe. He's got this big forest, all of these trees that need to be taken down, and he doesn't have time to stop and sharpen his axe. If he stops, the work's not going to get done, and so he just plows away to cut down these trees. Whereas if he would just see the big picture, he'd realize that sharpening his axe might slow him down for an hour or two, but in the end, it'll make his work much more efficient. It'll make the job go much more effectively. So the point is, whereas foolishness tends to just barrel ahead, wisdom prepares. Wisdom looks ahead. 
Wisdom sees the big picture. So live your life with wisdom. So let's apply this in a couple ways. Be a wise husband. Be a wise wife. See the big picture in your marriage. So think about it in your marriage, husbands and wives. That attitude that you're allowing into your marriage right now, or I talked earlier about some of the foolish ways in marriage that we might respond to conflict. Okay, so maybe your solution to conflict is you just slam the door. That's how you make your points. Or maybe the way you respond to conflict is the next three days I'm not going to speak to her. That's how I'll make my point. Well, Solomon's encouraging you to see the big picture. What, those seeds that you're sowing right now in your marriage, what harvest is that going to produce? Look, look five years down the road. Let me, ask you, let me ask it to you this way. Um, how many couples do you know who have been married for 40, 50 years who still seem to enjoy being together. Now at first it's hard to find couples who have been married 40 or 50 years, but how many do you know who have been married 50 years and actually still enjoy one another's company? And you watch them together and think, man, I want to be that way when I've been married for 50 years. You see some, we have some in our church, but isn't it a very rare thing? So, so are there some seeds you're sowing right now in your marriage by the attitude you have, the way you're responding, the way you're handling conflict, are you sowing seeds in your marriage that 10 years from now are going to produce a terrible harvest? Are you thinking about the big picture in your home? Be a wise parent. It, it is much easier just to ignore misbehavior and rebellion in the heart of your child. But what are you allowing to be formed in your child's heart? Man, it takes a lot more effort and a lot more energy and a lot more intentionality to consistently discipline and disciple. It takes a lot more effort to do family worship and catechize your kids. It takes a lot more time and a lot more effort. But see beyond the moment. Our goal in parenting is not what's happening. It's not what's easiest in the moment, is it? Shouldn't we be thinking in wisdom about what it is that I want my kids to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now? So I need to make my decisions in the moment based on 20 years from now, what is it that's going to help my kids be faithful, well-equipped followers of Jesus Christ? See the big picture. That's what Solomon is encouraging us to do. And I'll, and I'll end with this. You know, Jesus also gave us a comparison between wisdom and foolishness. He described what the wise person looks like versus what the foolish person looks like. And here's his analogy. Listen to Matthew chapter 7. I'm starting in verse 24. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now let me ask you a question. What's easier in the moment? To, to dig down to the rock to make sure you're building your house on a solid foundation? Or is it easier just to build your house right there on top of the sand? 
Well, it's a lot easier in the moment just to build it as it lays right there on top of the sand. But if you have any foresight, you realize one day it's going to start raining. One day the storm's going to move in, and if I don't build my house on a rock, it's all going to get washed away. And so what's Jesus comparing that to? Jesus says the wise one, the person who builds his house on the rock, is the person who not just hears what Jesus says. Did you get that? It's the person who not only hears what Jesus says, but does it. Does it? Let me ask you this. Is it harder in church life, is it harder in your personal devotion time just to listen to a sermon, just to listen to a Sunday school lesson, just to read through whatever your scripture reading is for that day? That's not very, that doesn't take much effort or intentionality at all. You know what takes a lot more effort and intentionality? To actually take what I read, to actually take what I hear, and put it to work in my life. Where I see something that's out of step with God's Word, I don't just let it go in one ear and out the other. I repent. I come before God and acknowledge my sin, and I obey what God says. I get my life back in alignment with what God says. That's the hard work, but Jesus is saying... That is the work of wisdom. You can, you can do your Bible reading every day and sit in a church service every week and still be a fool. Because a fool is, is someone who hears but doesn't do. Jesus says the wise man is the one who hears and responds. See the big picture. How far exactly should we look down the road? Jesus is saying don't just look at the moment. Solomon is saying see the big end results. How far should we look down the road? What is the big picture for us? Well, where we look down the road to is the day's going to come where you and I are going to stand before God. Ultimately, that's what we're looking to, right? The day's going to come where the God who made us is also going to judge us. And we are going to give an account of our life to God. It might be a lot easier today to follow your heart and do whatever makes you happy but you can rest assured it is not going to be easier on that day. So live your life today with that day in view. And the way you do that is through repentance and faith. Where your life is not in the light of God's revelation. Where you see your life in sin, acknowledge it, confess it to God, and look to Christ as the one who took the punishment for our folly. Right? Our folly isn't just accidental. Our folly is intentional, it's heart level, it's rebellion. Well, we have a Savior who died to take the consequences, the punishment for our rebellion. We have a Savior who died so that through faith in Him, there's the promise of real change. I don't have to stay on the path of foolishness. I don't have to live my life as a fool. Through faith in Christ, there is a real power that changes. So don't just listen. Don't just let it go in one ear and out the other. Listen Repent, believe, obey. That's what wisdom looks like. So let's bow together for a word of prayer.